If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Following the Second World War, the United States entered into a new cultural age, one defined by experimentation and freedom of expression. From Andy Warhol's pop art to existentialism in Elvis, the beat poets and the Beatles. It's a cultural landscape that Louis Menand explores in his book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. He joined me to tell me more. So the free world, it looks at American culture between 1945 and 1965. Why was this such a fascinating era for art and ideas? So those are the first 20 years of the Cold War. And I think the Cold War provided a context for people to think about art and ideas in a way that was very intense uh, and to produce work that was very creative and original. So I was just drawn to the period because I was trying to figure out what these thinkers and artists were doing. Um, and I found there were some great stories there. I'm interested by this connection to the Cold War, because as you say, this isn't a book that's about culture specifically inspired by the Cold War, but the Cold War does provide an interesting context. Why for you is that the one of the primary pieces of context that we need to understand in this era to get to grips with culture? Yeah, it's a good question. So a lot of stuff has been written about the culture of the Cold War that treats art and literature, film and so forth as reflecting Cold War conditions or reflecting, for example, American anti-communism. Uh, and then, of course, quite a bit has been written about the way in which the American government overtly and covertly supported various kinds of uh, cultural initiatives and efforts of cultural diplomacy. So when I actually started writing the book, which was quite a while ago, uh, I had those ideas very much in mind, but I found as I was going through these figures I write about that actually those things were not very important. But what I did think was important was that the Cold War charged the atmosphere for art and ideas because it made people think, is this the right way for society to be going to endorse this kind of music or this kind of painting or this kind of poetry? Um, or is that taking us in the wrong direction? There's a lot of anxiety after 1945, which is really 
uh, encapsulated in George Orwell's novel 1984 that the direction of modern history is just towards totalitarianism. That was Orwell's idea of the future. This is what everything's going to be like this in the future. And so people really worried that liberal democracies were not stable forms of government and that they could be easily tipped over into some kind of totalitarianism. So that makes everything matter because suddenly we have to interrogate all the practices that we're pursuing to see whether this is leading us in the direction of a kind of society that we don't want. Yeah, something you say in the book that I found really intriguing was that this was an era where people really valued culture. As you say, they believed it mattered. What do you think that the consequence of that was? It made for very exciting debates because, uh, I mean, just to give you an example, one of the things that the American government and, and the governments of the liberal democracies, including the UK and France, wanted to do in the Cold War was to promote the idea that expression was free in liberal democracies, that the state doesn't tell you what to write or what to paint or what kind of movies to make, um, as opposed to in the Soviet Union, where there was an official aesthetic, socialist realism. And everybody knew that if you didn't adhere to that aesthetic, your work would be censored or banned. Um, so the liberal democracies want to say to the world, look, we don't tell painters what to paint. Okay, so we don't tell painters what to paint. Suppose a painter decides to make a painting by just throwing paint on a canvas on the floor. Is that a painting? Is that art? Suppose a composer composes a piece of music which is, consists of four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Is that music? So there's a lot at stake because we have to show that freedom conduces to good art, not just crazy stuff. Um, so it's fascinating to watch the rationales that are given to explain why the drip paintings of Jackson Pollock are painting and why the silent piece by John Cage's music. And that's fascinating to write about. This emphasis on freedom, you think that it did lead to a, to a boom in experimentation then in the arts and ideas? I do. I do. I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of formal and informal censorship. There are strict laws against obscenity right up until the 1960s in the U.S. and in the U.K. Um, everybody knows the Lady Chatterley's case and so forth. That that's, happens in the early 60s here, too, in the U.S. So there's a commitment to providing as much space as possible for the artist's freedom. And artists take advantage of that. I'm intrigued, though, by this idea of freedom because it it wasn't a simple one, was it, at the time? There were contradictions within that idea, and it didn't necessarily extend to all Americans. Something you look at in the book, for example, is Black American culture. Of course, this was a time of, of activism and struggle for many African Americans. And can we see that reflected in the culture as well? Yes, of course you can, because the truth is, in all of American history, there's a relationship between the culture of Black Americans and white Americans, uh, and it's it's very profound. But you can certainly see it in this period um, in, in a number of forms and a number of figures. But the important thing to note about the American Civil Rights Movement, which a lot of Americans don't get, uh, but I think people in the rest of the world understand, is that it took place in the context of decolonization. It was really a global phenomenon that the American Civil Rights Movement was a part of. Black Americans and particularly don't like to think of themselves or didn't like to think of themselves, I should say, in this period as having solidarity with decolonizing peoples in, for example, West Africa or Caribbean and so on. But but from the, from the point of view of those Black people, there was a solidarity by virtue of a common history of oppression. So I try to show the way in which the decolonizing movement around the world, which is profound, really completely changes the international map, was a spur to the American government to support the demands of American civil rights leaders. 
Another aspect of this freedom that I just wanted to dig into a bit deeper is the idea of counterculture. So if you're in a free society where, as you say, you can make a piece of music that is silent, then where does that leave counterculture? Because I think a lot of people think of the 60s as a time of the rise of counterculture. But if there are no rules, then how does that fit in? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Well, of course, there's rules of all kinds. There's all kinds of informal rules about what counts and what doesn't count. Look, Silent Piece for Piano, this piece by John Cage we're talking about, he composed that in 1952. It's very controversial. I mean, for most people, it just seemed like nonsense or joke. Um, the same thing's true of Jackson Pollock's paintings or Andy Warhol's pop art. For, for, a, lot of pe- for a lot of Americans, that, that stuff didn't count. Um, so it's not like it was easy for that to be accepted. But I guess I would put it this way. In a free society, you need a counterculture to show that you're free, but you need a counterculture that you can accommodate. Um, so when you look at the growth of counterculture type uh, ways of living or ways of creating things, like the beat poets, for example, they're easily accommodated by the mainstream culture. That's what counts as dissent because it fits in with our idea of what would count as a, as a countercultural movement. So it's fascinating to watch these things grow up because in the case of the Beats, for example, so this is Allen Ginsberg, the poet, who published the poem Howell uh, in 1956. Jack Kerouac, his friend, the novelist, published on the road in 1957. And then a number of other figures like William Burroughs, Gregory Corso, and so on. They constitute the Beat movement. It's very visible very photogenic, so there's a lot of coverage of it in the newspapers and magazines and so on. Uh, and the work is very exciting to people. Um, who promoted the works of Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac? The New York Times, the most mainstream journal in the country. They created a lot of coverage of their works, and that's what got them into the mainstream. So it's just not the case that these countercultures are truly uh, truly re- reactive to the main culture. They're also part of the main And what about the ways in which people outside of America responded to this cultural output? Was there an excitement about American culture elsewhere in the globe? Um, yes, uh, though it's a complicated uh, story. Um, so complicated for a couple of reasons. One, which is a big, I think, part of my approach in this book is that there's really no such thing as American culture in this period. I mean, there's a few things that are unique to America, like rhythm and blues music or something like that. But most of this stuff is the effect of transnational cultural influences. And I try to spend a lot of time showing how American culture influences British culture and French culture and vice versa, because it it doesn't come out of America. America kind of owns it at a certain point, but it's not like it's just created by America. It's created by the whole free world. I would include Japanese artists, Indian thinkers, and so on. They're all part of the mix here. Um, But the American government during this period, uh, in the 1950s in particular, tried to promote American culture with the form in the form of cultural diplomacy, which just means sending art exhibitions abroad, sending musicians abroad like Louis Armstrong, and publishing American writing and journals that were circulated in other countries to promote the idea that America was not just a materialist, crass country, but was a real civilization. Uh, This is something that Americans are very insecure about, or used to be, we're not anymore, that we're not a real civilization. So to do that, they promoted a lot of modernist writing, a lot of serious painters, and so on. Um, But really, what captured the attention of the world was rock and roll. (laughs) That becomes, by 1958, everybody around the world, in Tokyo, and Jakarta, and Singapore, everybody, teenagers are dancing to rock and roll. There's cover bands everywhere. Um, Of course, the Beatles are the most famous of those cover bands. Um, So 
that's an American export the government had nothing to do with. It just was a commercial product, but it, it really won the hearts and minds of people. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's not like there's things that everybody needs to read or so on. If you don't want to read it, read something else. So it's quite different now. It's very important to people, but in a completely different way than it was 60 years ago. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I wonder if you could nominate a couple of real lightning rod moments of culture in this period. What are some of the pieces of art or music which you think are most defining of the era? Yeah. Um, So I try to write about exactly those things in the book. So one is, of course, the drip paintings. Jackson Pollock was a very ambitious painter. He went to high school in L.A., and he comes to New York in the 1930s, <clears throat> but he struggled a lot to have his work accepted and find a place to exhibit it and so forth. And then in 1946 or 1947, he gets married to Lee Krasner, who's another abstract painter, and they move to Long Island, and they have this little house, and he's, at this point, painting big mural-sized canvases. But the, ha- the walls of the house are too small to stretch a canvas on. So he puts the canvas on the floor and he starts painting it by sticking a stick in a can of paint and throwing it on the canvas. Those are the drip paintings. Um, And he likes the effect. So when they convert a barn on the property into a studio, he continues to put the canvas on the floor and he continues to paint that way. And everybody's seen the pictures of Paul. He dances around the canvas with his stick of paint, creating these incredible paintings, really incredible, beautiful paintings. 
And after three years, he stops. So that's a period of about three years in which this incredible body of work is created sort of by accident. It's not like Jackson Pollock said, ah, I figured out a good way to make a painting. He just thought, how the hell am I going to make a painting in this stupid house, right? And he produces this incredible work. So that's a moment when that becomes iconic. People think about the Pollock drip painting as kind of iconic of the abstract expression star movement. Another example is Elvis Presley. It's a very similar story. So Elvis Presley grows up in, uh, he's from Mississippi, grows up in Memphis, goes to high school in Memphis, and he's a great singer. And he loves to sing, carries his guitar around, sings, uh, and his favorite songs are ballads, so pop songs. Um, and he goes into a little studio in Memphis to record a record for his mother. You could pay $4 and they would record your record and give you like a single, what's called a single or acetate of the song. And he, he recorded this song. Uh, and somebody wrote down Elvis Presley, good ballad singer. So then the owner of the studio a little later gets hold of a ballad. He wants somebody to sing it. He calls Elvis. Elvis comes in, tries to sing it, doesn't work. The owner of the studio, whose name is Sam Phillips, gets a couple more musicians to come in. A guy who plays electric guitar, Scotty Moore, a guy who plays the bass, Bill Black. And they start accompanying Elvis. And they try to record a Bing Crosby song. So it's very pop stuff. Try to record a ballad. Try to record a country song. Nothing's working. They want to go home. It's July. You know, everybody's hot. And Elvis grabs the microphone. He starts goofing around. And he sings this rhythm and blues song that he heard before, a long time ago, called That's All Right, Mama. And then Bill Black and Scotty Moore start joking around, too. They're not taking this seriously. Sam Phillips comes out of the control and he says, that sounds great. Start from the beginning. And they record a song. That's the first rock and roll song that Elvis recorded. He had no intention of recording rock and roll. He'd never sung that kind of music before in his entire life, but it worked. So there's a lot of things like that where that becomes an iconic song. You know, That's All Right, Mama by Elvis Presley. Jasper Johns' flag painting, Andy Warhol's Coke bottle painting. So those are the same kinds of things where just almost serendipitously, something happens that works, and then that becomes part of the historical narrative. See, that's really intriguing to me, this idea that these innovations, artistic innovations, they happened almost by accident rather than by design. But were there any real key artistic moments that people planned to be cutting edge, provocative. People thought, I'm going to push the boundaries here and do something completely different. Well, I think that's what John Cage thought he was doing when he made the silent piece. So uh, so that piece is called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which is how long it takes to perform. It's been recorded over 20 times, which sounds kind of insane. It's been performed by the, um, by the uh, Royal Philharmonic. I mean, it's kind of it's weird, but and I've I've been to performances of it. Um, but the original time, the first time it was performed was in 1952, right after he composed it. He composed it. I won't go into the details, but he had a very complicated system of composing, and he used it to compose this piece. And there's actually sheet music for the silent piece. Uh, and uh, the first time it was performed was performed in a place called the Maverick Concert Hall in Woodstock, New York, which is about an hour and a half north of New York City, and it was in the woods and it was open air. So there's a corrugated roof on metal roof on the concert hall, but the sides were exposed to the woods. And when the piece was being performed, you could hear the sounds of the animals in the woods. You could hear the wind blowing through the leaves. You could hear a patter of rain on the corrugated roof. You could hear people walking around when they tried to walk out. And Cage later said that was the music. And in fact, your life is filled with environmental sounds that you don't pay any attention to. But if you paid attention to them, it would be like music. Uh, 
So he had a profound idea about what he wanted this piece to do. He wanted it to retrain the way you listened, change the things that you listen to or the way you listen to them, aestheticize your normal everyday experience. That's a traditional motive for making art. That's what all artists want to do. They want to change the way you experience the world. And that's what Cage was doing with this piece. So it reads as a prank, you know, but it's not a prank. It's a very profound work of art. Yeah. While we're talking about groundbreaking music, a band you earlier referred to um, quite enjoyably as a cover band, the Beatles. I think we can't talk about 60s culture, at least when a lot of our audience is based in the UK without mentioning the Beatles. But I'm intrigued as to what their role in American culture was and how they were received and responses to them and how they fed into American culture and were influenced by it. Yeah, the Beatles were huge, obviously. They're a big story of the 60s, um, not just here, but everywhere. Um, the Beatles started out, of course, um, in Liverpool playing American music. They played American rock and roll music. So they played Elvis, Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, also the American rockers. And they were really good at it. And they traveled around Europe playing because they were one of the best cover bands for this kind of music. They played in Hamburg for a long time. They also played in Paris. Um, and they generated a huge following in, in the UK. Um, so then they're invited to come to the United States to perform on the Ed Sullivan Show, which is this big variety show on Sunday nights in the US. And just parenthetically, these TV shows are huge so showcases for musical talent because there are only a few... Uh, television stations in the U.S. in 1964. There were just three national networks. That's it. That's all you could watch. So the audience for Ed Sullivan was 70 million people. That's more people than watch, you know, the Super Bowl here. That's a huge number of people. So if you go on that show and perform a song, you're going to sell a lot of records. So they go on Ed Sullivan and they fly over 1964. And the stories that Paul said to George or George said to Paul, I don't know which one, uh, what do the Americans want us for? meaning we're just playing American music. Of course, at this point, they'd already started writing their own songs, which most, most performers didn't do in those days. So they had their own catalog, but they basically thought of themselves as American rock and roll band. When they come over here, they don't read as American at all. They read as European. The sort of metrosexual clothes that they wore, obviously the haircuts, the Scouse accent, which nobody understood over here. All this stuff, you know, for, for Americans, that was just exotic. So they... They didn't look like Elvis knockoffs at all, um, whatever they thought of themselves as. They looked like a completely unique act. Um, so they had this great effect on American musical culture. And they also made, because the Beatles, like all the great British, British invasion bands, Stones, The Animals, um, The Who, they'd all gone to art school. They all had a very sophisticated idea about the relationship between entertainment and art and lifestyle and everything, which American musicians really didn't have. It just, they just sang. But the Beatles dressed up, you know, they made movies. They, you know, they had a very sophisticated idea about, about the pop world, and that really transformed American popular music. You mentioned their sophisticated ideas about the pop world. Do you think that it was taking that popular entertainment more seriously that played into this um, boom in? experimental culture um yeah so i think the beatles were key there because until the beatles really until 1964 not just their performance on american television but also the release of their first movie hard day's night captured an adult audience and that's really the first time that adults paid attention to 
rock and roll type popular culture. Adults liked the Hard Day's Night. They thought it was a fun movie, which which it is. And then they and then they like listening to albums like Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's and so on because they're interesting not just to teenagers they're not just dance music so uh so so yeah so the beatles really had played a big role not only the beatles but like the motown the supremes popular music played a big role in getting american intellectuals comfortable with american popular culture which they had really not been until the 60s we've spoken quite a lot about individuals in this conversation and not so much about wider movements uh and i just wanted to ask you what you thought some of the most significant artistic movements were of this period, or perhaps philosophical movements? One of the things I think is important in trying to understand all the examples that we're talking about, the Beatles, Elvis Presley, <clears throat> the painters, and so forth, the beat poets, is the growth of a cultural infrastructure that enables these artists to <clears throat> do what they do and to get their work out to the public. When Jackson Pollock started the drip paintings and when the abstract expressionists like William de Kooning and you know um, Franz Klein and so forth started doing their Mark Rothko doing their work, which was the late all in the late forties. There was very little of an American art world for contemporary painters. There are very few galleries that show contemporary American art. Very few buyers or collectors bought contemporary American art. Even the Museum of Modern Art, which is dedicated to modern art, was not interested in American modern art in the nineteen forties. So there was no place for these people to show their stuff, and then. Gradually, an art world develops. Those include just galleries who will exhibit the work or collectors who will buy it or museums who will buy it and exhibit it. It also has to include critics who can understand it and explain it. Why is the drip painting a serious painting? Why is the Coke bottle a serious painting? Um, and that all happens in the 1950s. So by the time Andy Warhol comes along, 1962, there's a whole art world out there. There's all these galleries interested in contemporary American art. Warhol has all kinds of places to show his work, and there's a lot of critics saying, oh, this is what contemporary pop art is about. I'll explain it to you. You need that, and you need that in music business, you need that in book publishing, you need all these industries to create an infrastructure so that people can come in and do their thing. And that's the big story in terms of the background of all the things we're talking about. These are not just geniuses who came along and said, you know, I'm here's a great song. These are people who were working within the context of a whole industry. Um, so the, a lot of my book is explaining how these industries operate and how they grew in this period. It's a very expansive period because there's a huge amount of economic growth around the world, uh, not just here in the U.S. Um, and that growth fuels book publishing, music uh, publishing, and so forth. Um, so that's a lot of it. So in terms of movements, yeah. So I talk, I do talk about a lot of movements. I would say, I mean, they're all important in their own way, the ones I discuss. Obviously, a big one is existentialism. So that happens very quickly after the war because Sartre and Beauvoir are really kind of ready to go in 1945 after Paris is liberated. Paris liberated in 1944. The war comes to an end in May 1945. And that's when they launch what Beauvoir called their existentialist offensive. They start this journal, Les Tons Modernes. Uh, Sartre gives this lecture called Existentialism is a Humanism that becomes very popular. He publishes his plays. Camus publishes his work. And, and existentialism becomes kind of like it floods the field. Like everybody wants to be an existentialist. Jazz is existentialist. Painting is existentialist. You know, Jackson Pollock is an existentialist. Um, and that's like a huge moment uh, in the post-war period when this French idea, which goes all the way back to 
people like Heidegger and so forth, who nobody was paying attention to, suddenly catches on as kind of a popular fad. So that's a big movement that's I try to write about. I did want to ask you about how the cultural landscape of America looked different in 1965 than it had in 1945. But would you say that what you've already told us about the growth of infrastructure, was that the main change there? Two things. Yeah, that's one of them, is that all these all these publishing, all these cultural industries grow enormously in the post-war period. Um, but the second one is that America goes from being in 1945 a country whose government was respected as a benevolent power because the U.S. had helped lead the fight against fascism, helped, and then it helped rebuild Western Europe and Japan so, soon after, um, but kind of culturally marginal. People didn't think the United States was a center of civilization. That was kind of for Paris, right? So by 1965, that's completely reversed. Once America gets involved in Vietnam, we burn through all that political capital that we'd accumulated in the 40s and 50s uh, because the world sees us as an imperialist neocolonial power. But we've gained respectability and centrality in the global world of culture. And that's where the United States is today. It's all culture is global now. It all passes through Los Angeles and New York. Um, so that's the change that the book describes. And finally, would you describe this as a golden age of American culture? Or is that um, somewhat too rose-tinted? Yeah, I don't like to use those kinds of terms. Uh, I'm not nostalgic for this period. Um, I think, you know, I'm an English professor. I make my living teaching poetry and fiction. And it's exciting to read about a period when people really cared about that stuff. So it's not that people don't enjoy it, want to talk about it, but they don't care quite as profoundly or existentially as people did in the 50s and 60s. So we might think, oh, they were they were being a little too hysterical about the importance of this stuff. But it, they didn't think that. They thought this is really important and we should really you know, figure it out. So so to that extent, I feel this, this is a good time for culture. It's a good time for culture now in a different way because there's so much of it. It's just like the horizon is limitless, all the stuff out there. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to know who all, who all the pop bands were. I don't have the first idea of all the pop bands. There's thousands of them. And you can create a new one by making a music video and posting it on Spotify. Then suddenly you're another pop band. All kind of Literary fiction circulates around the world. Obviously, streaming stuff circulates around the world. Um, it's huge expanse of cultural product, but there's no monuments. It's very flat. It's not like there's things that everybody needs to read or so on. If you don't want to read it, read something else. So it's quite different now. It's very important to people, but in a completely different way than it was 60 years ago. That was Louis Menand. His book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War, published in the UK by HarperCollins. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Thank you.